This next preacher, and notice I said preacher, not speaker, because as you will hear, this is a preacher, is, is one of my favorite. Um, I've got things written down here, and I'll tell you those things, but first, just on a personal note, um, I've known Robert for quite a few years now. Uh, he, he was, uh, we, we found him when I was uh, the, the director of Super Summer, and, and you're always looking, when you're directing a youth camp, you're, you're trying to find someone that youth can relate to, and almost more than any other communicator we've ever had at Super Summer, these kids connected to, to Robert. But it doesn't just happen with the students, I've noticed. It happens with every crowd he's in front of. He connects in a way that, um, that I envy in some ways because he has a passion for the lost and a, an ability to preach the word. He's the, the lead pastor of Freedom Church in Bedford, Texas. It's a growing, diverse, and multi-generational church. And, and graciously, he has chosen to help us as an interim director of African-American evangelism, and we are honored to have him. Would you help me welcome Robert White? All right. Uh, good morning. How are you? All right. Hey, a couple of things. Uh, thank you, Layton, for, for that introduction. I appreciate you. I remember the year that Layton called me to be a part of Super Summer, uh, and I had to give some disclaimers the first time that I preached. I'm going to do the same thing here today, all right? Uh, first things first, this is an interactive experience. Amen. There you go. This is, this is an interactive experience. Don't, don't sit there like you have to uh, participate in silence. No, you can talk back to me. If it gets good, say amen. If, if it gets hard, say ouch. Uh, if you really, really like something, you can stand up on your feet and say, come on, brother. You, you can do all of that, and I will not be offended at any point. Uh, the other thing I need to, to share with you is that this towel is not a prop. Uh, this is not going to be something that later on you're going to figure out I'm going to do some illustration with. I will sweat. I know some of you came in here and uh, you, you, you put on your coats because it was cold outside and it was chilly inside and you're thinking, oh man, this guy's going to be okay. No, I'm not. I can sweat in an igloo in Alaska, okay? And, and so for it to be less distracting uh, because the towel is less distracting than the pouring sweat that will come down my face. Disclaimer number three. I am extremely passionate about the gospel. Amen. I love Jesus. I love people. I love the word of God. And so uh, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to present that with the personality that God has given me. My pastor told me that preaching is proclamation through a personality. So I can be no one else but who God has made me to be. So that's my disclaimer for you. Uh, I'm an acquired taste. For some of you, uh, it's going to be like, it's gonna be like uh, you're a vegan and I'm, I'm a big steak. So uh, just, just chew slowly. Chew slowly. Don't choke. Uh, last disclaimer. Last disclaimer is uh, Katie, Dr. Katie McCoy did such an amazing job. Would you agree? Now, now, now I need to give you this disclaimer. I feel like she saw my iPad. She took my notes and she elevated them. And yes, it was an amazing uh, thing, but I'll tell you what I'm, what I'm going to do. It's my disclaimer. I, I probably am not going to give you a whole bunch of new stuff. She did a great job of doing that. Uh, I, I was thinking about it as I was sitting there, and I thought about Katie as, as a position coach uh, for a football team. I'm an athlete. I, I love sports analogies. I thought about her as a position coach for, for, for a, a team. And as we're all gathered together as one team who have one goal, and that's to get the gospel out to as many people as possible, I saw Katie as a position coach that came up and gave you some technical things and some stuff that are going to help you to understand that we are a team that has been doing this, and we have a winning tradition. 
and that for years we've had this winning tradition that has, uh, has lasted through generations and times and spans and eons, and God says it's going to continue as long as we're faithful. Now, here's who I am. I'm, I'm not a position coach. I'm, I'm like that strength coach at the tunnel before the game. I'm that strength coach, Carlos, who will who, get the team hype. He's going to get them going. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't go into the specific places and teach them something new. What he does is he makes sure you're motivated to go get the job done. That's what I want to do today. I, I want to make sure that you are motivated to get the job done. And so we're going to do that uh, by using a, a passage of Scripture uh, in Philippians chapter number 1, verses 27 through 30. Philippians chapter number 1, uh, verses 27 through 30. If you got your iPads, your iPhones, your Bibles, if you got an Android, I can't wait for you to force close your Bible app, so I'm going to keep going. <laughs> I just lost uh, the most sinful crowd in the room. Here we go. <laughs> Philippians 1, 27 says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Uh, just for a few moments, I want to talk to you about having a broader invitation, a broader invitation. A couple months ago, we decided to do something unique in our church. Uh, we wanted to have a Pillars and Peers luncheon for people who were uh, uniquely leaned into what it was that we were doing as a church. We wanted to have a Pillars and Peers luncheon that celebrated leaders and what we call liberators and people who were contributing on a level beyond what the average person was. And so we created this beautiful invitation, this great flyer, and we said, we want to invite you to the Pillars and Peers luncheon. It had the date. It had the place. It said that we we're inviting them. We told them who they could bring with them. The problem is, after we sent out the invitation, we didn't get many RSVPs. I mean, all of the information we checked the flyer was accurate. We checked the email address that we wanted them to RSVP to, the number that we had available. These were the people who were involved. These were the people that we felt like if we gave them the invitation, they would accept our invitation. And so we, we kept wondering why we were getting little invitations. Now, me uh, being the guy that I am, I looked to the scripture and I saw what Jesus did when people rejected his invitation. He said, go out in the highways and find some new people and invite them. Then, then my administrator made me to realize that this was the first time that we were doing it. And, and, and while the information we were giving out was accurate, while the message of the invitation was accurate, the people did not understand what we were inviting them to. While, 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 while the information on our invitation was clear to us because we were on the inside, we were the ones giving the invitation. These people looked at the invitation and without context, they said they needed more. And so we started making phone calls and asking them what it is, that they, if they would participate and if they would come. And many people, once they got an understanding of what it is that we were inviting them to, began one by one to say, I accept. Once they got an understanding of what it was that they were being invited to, they began to say, we want in on that. 
See, the problem was not with our invitation. It was there was something on our end that needed to be clarified, something that needed to come from us that they could hear or see or experience that would cause them to understand that this invitation was worth accepting. The issue was not with us sending out more invitations. More invitations would not have solved the problem. There was something that needed to be fixed on our end in order to provide clarity and interest on their end. After we did our part, the responsibility for accepting said invitation was no longer on us, but it was on those that we had extended the invitation. When we discussed the topic of evangelism, We can easily find ourselves looking and settling on the fact that we need to extend the invitation to receive Christ to more people. That's the basic captain obvious statement. We need to share the gospel with more people, and that will be the fix to our low numbers of conversions and our low baptisms in our churches. We just need to invite more people. But the truth of the matter is, the question that they're asking is, what are you inviting me to? What are you inviting me to? And if you are inviting me to something, it is on us who hold the invitation in our hands to begin to present to them a clear understanding of what it is that they're getting involved in. And I believe the Apostle Paul shows us some things that go deeper into this gospel message, this broader invitation. Yes, we understand this good news, this euangelion, this message of hope that is given through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and eternal security and salvation. I understand that part, but here's what we need to understand. They're looking at us to see what the gospel does. They're looking at us to see a message of the gospel in flesh and in blood. And before we can continue to invite others to come and know Jesus, we must accept this broader invitation that's been accepted to that's been given to us or extended to us to live like Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Before we can extend this invitation and invite others to accept Jesus, we need to begin to accept the invitation extended to us to live like Jesus. So as I go through Philippians chapter 1, these simple few verses, I want you to understand that each one of these points is progressive. Each one of them is progressive. It's a progressive succession of things that our churches are called to do in order to strengthen our evangelistic position in our spheres of influence. And so here's what God has given us, a broader invitation as the church to do. Paul writing to this Philippian church is writing in an evangelistic context. If you understand the context of the book of Philippians, this is a church born out of Paul's evangelistic zeal that he has a vision to go and talk to a man of Macedonia. And when he finds himself getting ready to go there, he finds this woman named Lydia, a dyer of purple, and he shares the gospel with her. There there comes a church in her household. He goes, and his evangelistic zeal finds him sharing the gospel, and a young demon-possessed girl is following behind him, and, and he casts this demon out. And when he casts the demon out, he's thrown in jail because he's disrupting the society that he's been called to. And when he finds himself in this prison, he finds joy in his suffering. He sits and he sings in the middle of the night, and the Bible says the the prison start to shake. His chains are loose, that the Spirit of God shows up in the middle of their worship experience. And and, and right when the jailer begins to get ready to kill himself because he understands that his responsibility has put him in a place where he is now uh, guilty of allowing these prisoners to get on on his watch, regardless of if it was supernatural or not, the example of Paul creates a salvation. The example of his life 
preaches a message. The example of his life leads to an invitation that is broader than just the words that he was speaking. Paul and Silas sitting in the prison, shackles off, can walk freely wherever they want, but for the sake of the gospel, submit themselves in that moment. And the jailer makes this statement. He says, what must I do? To be saved. Oh, y'all churchy, y'all know that statement. Y'all, y'all understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What must I do to be saved? And there becomes this invitation that Paul has to preach the gospel. And the church of Philippians is born under that evangelistic context. This, this church born under this evangelistic context that actually becomes a church that has little issues theologically. That when we go to other issues in the churches, there are great theological issues that must be dealt with and great things that have to come, come, come to clarity and, and fruition. But this church that is born out of the example of lifestyle has the least theological issues. That this, this, this church that is born from the example of a man who says, I'll submit myself to the word and the will of God and do what it is that I say I believe has the least theological issues because experiences are harder to argue with than, than education. Experience are, har- are harder to argue with than education. And so out of this context, Paul is updating the Philippian church in chapter 1 about his missionary journeys and his imprisonment that he is now facing. He's sitting in a prison, and he's talking about how God is moving even while he's in prison, still being a great example of what the gospel looks like. He's sitting in this prison, and he writes to them and talks to them about what all God is doing through him. But then he shifts in verse 27. He says, let's take the onus off of me. You are this church that is born out of evangelistic zeal. I need for you not to just admire your pastor's zeal, but you got to have it for yourself. I need for you not to just acknowledge what it is that I'm doing. I need for you to live it as well. And from this, we get our four points that we'll see in Philippians 127 and 127. He says, whatever happens, he's talking about whether he lives or dies because he's in this prison awaiting possibly execution. This is where we get our famous text, to live as Christ, to die is gain. And he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, which leads me to the first thing that you need to do. You need to have gospel conduct. There needs to be some gospel conduct attached to our message. This broader invitation includes us being an example of gospel conduct. He says, whatever happens, he says, whether I live or die, whether I come to see you or not, whether you ever see me teach again or not, I need for you to understand you must conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel fixes our condition, it transforms our hearts, and it changes our behavior. I'm going to say that again. The gospel fixes our condition. There was a chasm between us and God. We know this story well. These are the people who showed up at 10 something in the morning on a Monday. I know that you understand, or I pray you understand that the gospel fixes the chasm between us and God. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that restored relationship between me and my father. And the gospel fixes my condition, but it also does something after that. It does not just put me in right standing with God. Because he comes in and fills me with his spirit, he begins to change the inside of me. God, on no merit of my own, gives me salvation. But then, because of his great mercy and his grace, he also transforms me. 
He begins to change the way that I walk. He begins to change the way that I talk. He begins to change the way that I think. He begins to change the way that I see the people around me. My conduct begins to change because of what happens in the gospel. It transforms my heart, and the transformation of my heart changes my behavior. See, I think one of the things that we've missed in the gospel is that we keep telling people about how the gospel is, of, it is not a meritocracy, that we do not earn God's salvation, which is accurate and true. It is by grace through faith that we are saved, not of your works, because none of you are going to be able to boast. I know it was not my works. If you look at my record and my resume, I'm just that bad that I should not be saved. But here's the reality. After I got saved, there were some things I've been called to do. Because that same scripture in Ephesians chapter 2 says that it's by grace through faith that we are saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God that, uh, uh, that gives us eternal life. But then he says, watch this, that we were created. We are his workmanship. We like that part. We were his workmanship created to do good works that he created for us beforehand. Here's what the gospel says. I fixed the problem of your distance. I've transformed and changed your heart. Now I'm calling you to live a certain kind of way. And the issue that we have in the world is that the church doesn't look different than anyone else. And Paul is saying, I'm calling you to a level of gospel conduct that says you understand who you've been called to be. We are adopted into God's family because of the finished work of Christ. And now as family members, we're called to live and look differently. Uh, uh, my name is Robert White, and I am the proud son of Robert White, but, but we grew up with this last name, White, that my dad would oftentimes emphasize. Now, I am a proud black man. I, I say that proudly. I'm a proud black man, but I grew up with the last name White, and this story will help you understand why I say that uh, to start. My dad was very big on your name. He said, he said, don't ruin your name. Make sure you have a good name. He would quote the proverb, a good name, right, above all things is to be honored. Here's what, here's what he would say. He said, he said uh, when we would misbehave in public or he'd see us acting up and we weren't looking like what he called us or what he raised us or trained us to be, my dad would get the three of us, there's three of us, and we stair step. I'm the oldest. I got a brother a year younger than me, and he's a year younger than that. And so he would kid us. He'd look us in the face. He said, is that how white boys behave? <laughs> and, and, and Phil, we'd we be in public. We'd be in public, and the response was always, no, sir. And he says, oh, how are you supposed to behave? Like whites. <laughs> and you get these three little black boys in public that had to confess that they had to be like whites. And everybody's looking at my dad thinking, who in the world is this man not giving his sons a great identity of who they are? But my dad wasn't talking about culture. My dad wasn't talking about ethnicity. My dad was talking about family. And what he was saying was, there's a certain way that we behave. There's a certain conduct that we have. Because we are whites, we behave differently. Because you bear the name of Jesus Christ, I don't care about your ethnicity. I don't care about where you're from. I don't care about how much money you make. There is a way that we live because we are called to be under the name of Christ. Y'all are a good class. I appreciate you talking back. Here it is. Paul says, I need you to conduct yourselves in a certain way. And in conducting yourselves, Paul uses a Greek word that literally deals with him, citizenship. It's a complicated Greek word that they say is really hard to explain in our Western culture, but, but, but in this term, he's using this word citizenship. Really, what he's saying is, I need you to behave like citizens of a greater kingdom. We live in a time when people can live in a city or a state and feel zero attachment to it. 
You, you can live in an environment that have zero attachment to it because we have free reign to live wherever we want. You know, I'm from Southern California and I live in Texas and I learned real fast that Texas is not like the rest of the world. <sighs> If you're from Texas, you represent Texas. And you go to New York, and you're still a Texan. And you go to Canada, and you're still a Texan. And I realize Texans have an understanding of citizenship. It is the great country of Texas. I don't know if there's a state called Texas. It's the great country of Texas. And when you find somebody who really understands their citizenship, watch this, they're willing to behave up to the standard of said citizenship. They're willing to live up to that standard. And we are loved into the kingdom, but we need to live up to our kingdom. Philippi had a great relationship with Rome. There was uh, a civil war that happened, and eventually uh, a bunch of retired soldiers began to settle there, and they were governed by this greater kingdom. Their connection to Rome was Rome governed them, and they were proud to be a part of this Roman Empire. They were proud to be called citizens of Rome. In fact, when Paul stirs up trouble in Philippi, when I talk to you about Acts 16, they say, this man is coming against the laws of our Roman government. He's in Philippi. But the Romans, I mean, the Philippians, were so excited about being a part of a greater kingdom that they didn't even claim where they were living. They claimed where they were governed by. Uh-oh, I think, I think we got a problem in the church because when Paul says to conduct yourselves as citizens of the kingdom, I think we claim where we're living more than we claim where we're from. That we have more allegiance to the place in which our zip code is than the place in which our eternal security is set. Is set. And God is telling me to tell somebody today that we are to have gospel conduct that elevates our citizenship in heaven above everything else that we have. Paul used the pride in Roman citizenship to illustrate the role of kingdom citizenship. When we prize our kingdom citizenship over and above our local and earthly citizenship, watch this, we attract and call attention to the beauty of the gospel. That there is something greater. There is something greater than what they see. There is something greater than what they're experiencing. I don't care how great we love this place. It is flawed at best. And people are wondering, is there something better? And God has given us the opportunity to show off the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. Your gospel conduct is not just how you behave morally. It is also how you talk to other people. It is the justice that you seek for those who do not have what you have. This is the gospel invitation to conduct and his citizenship in heaven. The second thing that Paul brings up is gospel community. He says, I, I want to give you a broader invitation, Philippians, as, I, as I, I get ready to transition, however that looks. I want you to understand that what you're inviting them to, they need to see more than just your words. They need to see gospel conduct. They also need to see gospel community. Now, now individually, as we, as we attain the gospel conduct, here's what happens. Collectively, we begin to become a community that is attractive to the outside world because they begin to see that all of us love like that. All of us care that deeply. All of us are self-controlled and restrained in that manner. All of us have a higher standard of living than what it is that there is more to this than just one pious person sitting in a corner with his face drowned up. No, there's a group of joyous communal people who love Jesus together and live above reproach in the standard of the kingdom. Philippians 1.27, here's what he says. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. 
It's difficult to care for the community around us. There's no, rinse of, no real sense of community within us. Let me say it again. It's difficult for us to care for the communities around us if there's no real sense of community within us. This is a big struggle for the church right now. And Dr. McCoy, she already uh, touched on this, that our infighting and our problems that we're having is beginning to take its root in our evangelistic quest. There is nothing wrong with the invitation. The message is pure. It is the messenger that is the problem. That why are we inviting people into this kingdom citizenship and this kingdom community when we don't even like each other? That, that we refuse to get along across cultural lines. Some people sitting in a worship service kind of like this, and I pray that you could say ouch when I say this, are more concerned that you didn't like the song they selected than the God we're singing about. And we're more concerned about the fact that I didn't wear a blazer to preach than the message I'm trying to get to you. That we're concerned about some of the, 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 the worst nuances about our differences and not focusing in on what it is that commits and unites us. Much of the context and the content of the New Testament is written not to individuals, but to communities. It's easy for you to read Philippians 1, b and you see this text as talking to you as an individual, but Paul's not talking to a person. He's talking to a people. <laughs> say it again, Robert. Rewind. Say it again. They missed it. <laughs> Paul is not just talking to a person. He's talking to a people. Whether I come and see you, when you read that in your devotional time, you feel good because you're saying, like, God is calling me. God is calling me. God is calling me. And that's that expressive individualism that we're talking about. Everybody wants to do their own thing when the truth of the matter is that word in the Greek is a plural. God says, whether I come and see you, all of y'all, Paul didn't expect to see one of you. Paul expected to show up and talk to the community. Paul, Paul was giving instructions to a community. There was never a time where Paul was just talking to an individual. He says, I want you to know and I want you to stand firm. Watch this, in one spirit. He says, as God is one, you are to be one. Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. We live in a society, as we've already heard, that's plagued with individualism and isolation. People are more lonely than they've ever been, and they're desiring a place where they can call home, desiring a place where they can come alongside of other people who will put aside their differences for the one thing that unites them. The problem is, as believers, we've learned to lean into the same lifestyle of the world. But if we're going to succeed in fulfilling the Great Commission, we have to, we've got to start seeing ourselves as one. Somebody say one. one. The thing that unites us is greater than the things that divide us. Jesus. We, we love to say that we preach the good news of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, but then we're divided when the one thing that we can agree on is Jesus, but yet the nuances divide us. So are we actually saying Jesus isn't greater than the nuance? Are we actually proclaiming to the world that the one thing that they actually need is actually, uh, it is less than the things that we're, we're putting above his unity? We've got to learn to be one. Charles Spurgeon says, as a bundle of rods, when once the binding cord is cut, becomes merely a number of weak and single twigs, so is it with a divided church. That a bundle of rods, when the binding goes away, when, the, when Christ is no longer the thing that is unifying us, we are as weak as a twig. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that we're living in a society where there are a bunch of weak churches and weak Christians because we are so divided. Not that we are not twigs and we don't identify ourselves with the ones across the way, but we will never unite with them to become the strong force that we are called to be in the community and society that God has called us to. Paul proves that what he is preaching is possible. When he tells the Philippians earlier in this chapter that he's more excited about the spread of the gospel than the motive of the people preaching it. Paul, Paul, Paul says, he says, you've heard that these people, some are preaching the gospel out here. Some are preaching it because they love the gospel and some are preaching it because they want to cause more trouble for me. But you know what Paul says? I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. As long as the gospel's going out, I'm okay. And I need for some people to resolve in their mind that if you are preaching the gospel, you know Jesus did this too. And I know some of you are wondering in your mind, well, how far do we go with that? That's not for you to judge. Jesus said, let the wheat and the tear grow together. Let him do the separating when he gets here. Here's the thing. We need to unite around the gospel. We need to unite around the gospel. You remember when those disciples of Jesus came to him and said, Lord, Lord, we saw some people who are not with us casting out demons and doing things in your name. And Jesus says, if they're not against us, they are with us. That's Jesus. And yet you're, never mind. I don't want to get in trouble, Layden. Here it is. And you might be saying to me right now, but, but, but Robert, you don't expect me to have community with the church that, Underline, fill in the blank. And whatever you can fill in the blank with, that's your idol. You don't expect me to actually have communion with fill in the blank. That's your idol because that has become greater than Jesus in your life. That has become greater than the gospel message in your life. This is why evangelism is not happening. We could blame the fact that people don't want to receive it. Then we're even saying that their refusal is greater than the gospel. No, it is on us now to be unified and communal. One of the greatest witnessing tools of the first century was the gospel's ability to unite people of all walks of life. All walks of life were united around this table, this, this table of communion with Jesus. This is why in Acts 2 and 42, the Bible talks about them breaking bread together and having fellowship together. It wasn't that, that, that they were all uh, homogeneous and monolithic in who they were. No, these were a diverse group of people who were coming together. This is why Paul exclaims in Galatians, he says, you understand what grace creates? Grace creates a church that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female slave nor free, barbarian. He says, everybody is one in Jesus. And the reality is we've got to return to this level of gospel community. Dr. Christina, I was on a flight uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and there, was this, there was this lady who was on the flight. And uh, we're, I like to take early flights because I like to get where I'm going early and be there all day. I don't like to, you know, get there at night and have to, have to scramble. So I'm on this early flight. And my wife and I are on the flight. And I'm looking at this lady. And she has the neck pillow. You know the neck pillow uh, that, that we use when we want to go to sleep. She has the neck pillow in her lap. And she gets on the plane. She sits down. She buckles her seatbelt up. And she falls asleep. And, and the neck pillow is in her lap. And she looks grossly uncomfortable. I mean, she's an elderly lady, and I'm, I'm scared. I'm like, she's not going to be able to wake up without that crick in her neck. I'm getting older, you know, and I understand how your body responds when you wake up. She's, she's sitting there, and, and, and the neck pillow is, is just sitting in her lap, and she's like scrunched over like this. And I, I nudge my wife. I said, look at her, babe. She needs to put the pillow. She needs to use the pillow. And I wanted to just shake her and say, ma'am, you got the pillow. Use it. I mean, it would make life a whole lot easier if you would just use what you've been given. Here's the problem with the church. 
God has given us this great tool of evangelism in this community that shows off what it is that God can do. And the reality is we're trying to tell people what it is, but we won't use the pillow. We, we won't use the pillow of our brothers and sisters who are different than us but are unified in Jesus. And when we try to explain something about Jesus, they're trying to figure out what's the picture of it. And we look uncomfortable because we don't want to worship with the church down the street. We don't want to fellowship with certain types of people. And the world is looking and saying, you, you look uncomfortable. You're trying to tell me that this Jesus unifies people, but I don't see you in unity with anybody. Just use the pillow. Point number one. Uh, Paul's calling us to a deeper level of gospel conduct. Point number two, he's calling us to gospel community. Point number three, this one is good. He's calling us to gospel confidence. Gospel confidence. Watch this. Now, I told you these are progressive. They're progressive. So once I begin to have gospel conduct, this is what happens, right? Because this is what I want you to understand. I'm not just calling you to have fellowship with anybody. No, the Bible says that when I told you not to have fellowship with sinners, I didn't tell you the people of the world because then you have to come out of the world. I'm talking about people of the church. So what you need to do is have gospel conduct so that the community is not threatened by your conduct. So then when we have gospel community, we now have confidence to stand up against the opposition of the world. This is the boldness that Paul has called us to, gospel confidence, especially in a culture that is trying to call us irrelevant, outdated, bigoted, insensitive, intolerant. The Bible says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. With, 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 let, me, let me give you the RWV. It's the Robert White version. It'll come out soon. Here's what it says. It says, without being afraid that you'll get canceled. Without being worried of your political affiliations. Without, without wondering if you'll still be accepted in your denominational tradition. He says, I don't need you to be frightened by anything if you're standing in the gospel. The gospel supersedes all of it. All of these beautiful things that can come from the gospel are not the gospel. I got to say that again, Reverend Jones, because that hit me hard. All of these beautiful things that can come from the gospel are not the gospel. But you know what we've done? We've elevated them to the place of the gospel. And so now the message is convoluted. And, and now we have not kept the main thing, the main thing. We've created all of these other things. But when we go back to the gospel, there is a confidence from our conduct and community that has resulted from the gospel. And we now can stand tall. I'm reminded of a story of a little boy who was at the park. And uh, it's a scrawny little boy. He's a small little boy. And there's other boys there. And they decide to pick on this little boy. They begin to pick on him because uh, they know that they can. And that's just what bullies do. They, they go to the people that they can and they begin to pick on them. And the little boy, though, um, while he's being picked on, he stands up for himself with no fear. And, and everybody around in the park, although they're not willing to step in for him, they're wondering, what is, so what is so different about this boy? Why is he standing up with no fear? The little boy is boldly proclaiming that they need to leave him alone. You need to leave me alone. And, and then the people are astonished as they watch. The faces of the bullies at one moment begin to shift. All of a sudden, they go from picking on him to a level of fear that they did not understand what was happening. And they begin to back down and look like they're in fear themselves. What happened is his big brother walks up behind him. And as his big brother walks up behind him, every bully begins to back down. And, and, and the lady asks the little boy, she says, little boy, wh why were you not afraid? When you stood up to the bullies, why, why were you not afraid that they would not pummel you or beat you into an inch of your life? The little boy says, because I knew my brother was near. 
He, he says, because I knew my brother would show up, there was no reason for me to be afraid. When we have the gospel, we not only have a God who is ever-present and always with us, we don't have to worry about the opposition of the enemy. We also live in community. And what I'm asking for the church to do as a result of this conference and other things that we do like this is that we stand together so that when I have to stand up in an uncomfortable situation for the gospel, not only do I know that the Spirit of God in me, that the God I'm praying to, that the Christ who died for me, but also my brothers and sisters in Christ are willing to stand with me and I can stand up to the opposition and say, because I've got gospel community, I've also got gospel confidence. Oftentimes we have to back down because we've got to make the next strategic move because we're afraid of what we're going to lose. But if we stood together as the, the, the group of people like Acts chapter 2 did and share all things in common, I'm not worried about what I'm going to lose. I'm worried about what we can gain. The Bible tells us this clearly, resist the devil. You guys know your Bible. A 2020 Barner research study said that more Americans believe in the existence of Satan, 56%, than the existence of God, 51%. While I believe that we have a real enemy, I still believe that we serve a more powerful God. So instead of hiding my faith in cowardice, I'm choosing to stand in faith and confidence. I'm choosing to share my faith with confidence. The problem is, while most Americans are believing in the devil, I feel like the church is following suit. We're more afraid of our enemy than we are confident in the power of God. We're giving him too much credit. The charge and commission from Jesus to the church requires a tenacity that is waning in our modern Western church. It requires a tenacity. But that tenacity is born from our community. And that community comes from our accountability to one another to have gospel conduct. We are so afraid of being canceled or politically correct or politically aligned that we've become weak. And the Bible is calling us to a level of gospel confidence. Finally, as I close, the Bible is calling us, Paul here in this text is calling us to gospel commitment. The book of Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 and 30 says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. Admittedly, as I was studying this passage, Phil, I wanted to leave these two verses out. I mean, as a preacher, I wanted to leave you guys excited about your confidence in Jesus. You can walk away and say, I'm confident. I'm going to share our faith. I'm going to tell my church we need to share our faith. We're a community. We're going to conduct ourselves in a way that's going to bring us together. We're going to have confidence. And God says he's going to destroy those enemies and give us salvation. And that's what we're going to do. And that'd be great. That's not the end of the text. I was taught how to preach. you got to take the passage for its entirety. And the entirety of the passage adds something that I'm not comfortable with. The entirety of the passage adds something that I don't necessarily want to tell you, but it's true. The Bible says that it has been granted to you. That means the word is the same word that is used to give you a spiritual or divine gift. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. You got a divine gift to believe in him. That's that grace that we receive, right? Because none of us came to Jesus on our own. No, it was grace extended to us that we were not seeking after him, nor will we ever have sought after him. But he reveals himself divinely to us and gives us the opportunity to respond to that revelation. And here's what happens. The Bible says that is a gift. It says we've been, we've been given a gift not only to believe in him. If you understand the gospel, it is our belief. But if you understand the gospel... It's also our suffering. He said it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also 
to suffer for him. This, this is my least favorite point, especially when you consider that one of the major themes of the book of Philippians is joy. I mean, Paul, make it make sense, friend. Choose one. Is it joy or is it suffering? Is it pain or is it progress? Is it smiles or is it frowns? Which one is it, Paul? But then I learned that Paul was saying that they're one and the same, that I can have joy even in my suffering. And the Lord said, Robert, you, you've seen this before. You, you know what it's like because I've learned to love a good storm. I told you I'm from Southern California. There is actually a song that most of you don't know, uh, but in my culture, they'll know. It's by Tony, Tony, Tony. It's called It Never Rains in Southern California. And, and it's very true. It, it rarely rains in Southern California. As a matter of fact, when I got here and I got through my first thunderstorm, I was wondering how the movies would record thunderstorms where, where the rain was so thick you couldn't see until I moved here. I thought it was all fake. I did. I did. But, but I've learned to enjoy a good thunderstorm. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Here's the reason why. It's not, not because I love the majesty of the nature of what God is doing. No, it's because I'm shallow and I want to have yard of the month. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 I've seen this yard of the month sign in my neighborhood and they place it out front and it says, this yard is the yard of the month. And it is purely, beautifully manicured and green and the garden is great. And everybody who drives by shows witness to the fact that this is yard of the month. And because I'm cheap, but I want yard of the month, I don't water my grass the way that I should to get yard of the month. And so when we get to the season where there are April showers for May flowers, I understand that this rain is beautiful, especially when my gardener comes out and he puts fertilizer in my grass. Oh, those are the days when I'm praying. I'm saying, God, you're the God of Elijah. You can make it rain. And I need for you to make it rain on my lawn today so that I can have yard of the month. I need for you to make it rain so that I want to have the honor of that sign that says to my neighbors that I am yard of the month. I actually want to be a witness to the beauty of what the storm can bring. Oh, oh, oh I'm not just talking about my yard. I want you to understand that while I love the storm, the reason why I love the storm is because there's a seed in the ground that is going to be watered by the storm that is going to produce something that my neighbors would be able to see. That's going to produce something that people will be able to give witness to. Can I talk to you about the storms of your suffering? That you have a seed of the gospel on the inside of you. And when you remain committed to whatever it is that God has done, there is a seed that is being watered by the storms of your suffering that will produce. Do some type of fruit in your life that allow your neighbors and your coworkers, your friends and your family to see that God is good. And no matter what I go through, he is still good. Paul describes the suffering of the believer as a gift of the gospel. The gift of suffering proves the gospel, not only in the fact that we suffer, but how we suffer everybody's going to go through storms. There are people out there that are talking about their suffering, but they don't have Jesus. But when you go through what you go through with who you go through it with, then the Bible says that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God gives me the encouragement to tell somebody today that he's watering your seed with your suffering. And the way that we suffer together as a community of faith is an evangelistic opportunity for others to see that God is good. Yeah. Dr. McCoy already told us, y'all, that, that what we have to do to go forward is to look back. And I need for you to understand that the things that I'm sharing with you right now are not optional. 
This is it. This is the last of what I want to tell you. The things that I'm sharing with you right now are not optional. Here's what I need you to understand. Have you ever filled out an online form and you get to the end of the online form and you hit submit, you filled in all the information and it takes you back? It won't go forward because there's a required field that is missing. That, that, that you're trying to skip the required field. Maybe you don't have the information. Maybe you forgot to do it. Whatever it is, you can't go forward until you fulfill the requirements. And the Lord told me to tell us today that if we want to proceed out of this place with just another booklet, just another handout, just another program, we're going to go right back to where we were until we fulfill what it is that the Great Commission has told us that we need to. We need to go and share the gospel, but it is through the example of how the gospel has transformed us that this message will be received by them. In fact, these are things that the Lord himself exemplified. Gospel conduct and how he lived and loved and led other people. Gospel community and how he chose diverse people around him, people who normally would not have gotten along, but he brought them together at the table. Gospel confidence to stand in the face of Pontius Pilate and Herod to say nothing but, but, but go to his, his impending death. And gospel commitment to suffer and die, knowing that the, that the storm of crucifixion would lead to the fruit of resurrection so that we could have eternal life. And I pray it all for you today because the actual invitation is to be more like Jesus. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time in your word together. We pray, God, that the encouragement that Paul gave to the Philippians will be an encouragement and ignition for us today. God, I pray that as we look toward your word, we would remind ourselves, God, that the message is not broken that the message needs no additions. What you need are messengers who are believing and living this gospel. So God, I pray that your spirit will fill us and empower us with gospel conduct, gospel community, gospel confidence, and gospel commitment so that the seeds of what it is that we are suffering will produce the fruit of the gospel in lives far and near. In Jesus' name, amen.